The running time for this Rain Hamcast podcast is 17 minutes 54 seconds. There is a station ID at 8 minutes 58 seconds, then 4 second pauses approximately every 3 minutes for timer resets. For February 24th, 2024, this is Rain Hamcast podcast number 109. I'm Will Rogers, K5WLR. When is the last time you heard a truly entertaining after-dinner talk about ham radio? Well, here's one from Hap Holly, KC9RP's archive, called Your Code Record is Cracked. It was given during the 1989 Dayton Hamvention Banquet in Dayton, Ohio. The speaker was Dave Bell, W6AQ, a full-time Hollywood producer and director. Dave produced three ham radio videos, A Ham's Wide World, Moving Up to Amateur Radio, and the original World of Ham Radio. His movie credits include, among others, Do You Remember Love, Nadia, and The Long Walk Home, plus some made-for-TV movies. Other television credits include the television series Unsolved Mysteries. Recipient of the Dayton Hamvention 1984 Amateur Radio of the Year, Dave was an inveterate DXer, having operated from Macau, 4U1ITU in Geneva, Switzerland, and twice from JY1, formerly King Hussein's station in Jordan. Here now is part one of Dave Bell's memorable talk, Your Code Record is Cracked. I'm always reluctant to talk about ham radio to a bunch of hams. It's, uh, it's just like preaching to the converted. It's like the guy, it's, it, it's, it's like the guy who was making an obvious and well-known point to an audience of alcoholics. You know, he held up a glass of water and he dropped a worm in it and he said, see, see, the worm didn't die. And he holds up a glass of gin and he drops the worm in it and he says, see, the worm died. He says, there's only one conclusion you can come to from that. You know what that is? And the little guy in the back said, yeah, drink gin, you won't have worms. <laughs> I subscribe completely to that theory, incidentally. <laughs> now, that fellow's speech was struck down by Edsel Murphy's Law, the basic tenet of which is, if anything can go wrong, it will. It's a law which states that any wire cut to length will be too short, and a, a self-starting oscillator won't. <laughs> now, Murphy struck the title of my speech tonight, too, because... The title is really a punchline and not a teaser like it should have been. So even though you have heard the punchline, I feel compelled to tell you the story or anybody at your table who's gone to the John will come back and it will all be over. Kind of like a Mike Tyson fight. So allow me, if you will, to take you to Fort Knox, Kentucky in the fall of 1955. Now, this is not only the Fort Knox where they keep the country's gold back in the days when we had some gold, but also the Fort Knox where they indoctrinate young men into the mysterious ways of the military. They say that Fort Knox is the only place in the country where you can stand in your hips in the mud and have the dust blow in your eyes. Now, why you'd ever want to do that is a mystery to me, but that's the kind of a place that the Army chose for my basic training. Now, those of you who've been through a basic training, you know, if anything was ever correctly named, that, that's it. The word basic means of or at the base, according to Webster. 
and he wasn't referring to an army base there. He was talking about base, lower than which there ain't much. <laughs> so I'm here to tell you about the first battle of my military career. And I'm not running for vice president or president or anything. I was actually just drafted. But this, the, first, the first battle of my military career in which I was defeated by a 78 RPM record. Now, only a few of you here are old enough to remember 78 RPM record, which is to CD stereo what roller skates are to a Rolls-Royce limousine. <laughs> the 78 RPM record, which did me in, had Morse code on it. Only three Morse code letters on it. To measure your aptitude for da-di-da-di-da-da-di-da, on the day I took the test, I knew the code 15 words a minute. The sergeant who appeared to give the test was the same guy who a couple of days earlier had struggled to read an announcement to us, an announcement designed to get us to donate a dollar of our $75 a month pay to help wipe out a crippling disease called polio. After he'd struggled with the paper for a while, he said simply, all right, you bitches, cough up a box so we can beat polo. <laughs> That's what he said, polo. Now, it's, it's, it's hard not to feel superior in the Army. <laughs> At least until the fighting starts. Now, Sergeant Polo, as I began to call him, shows up to administer the code test, and he announces that what we have here is the Morris Code. <laughs> Morris Code. Sounds like a Jewish philosopher, doesn't it? <laughs> when Samuel F.B. Morris invented his code as a means of conveying intelligence from point A to point B, he hadn't figured that the Army was going to be involved. As those of you who have been in the Army know, it works in mysterious ways. You would have known that just because I knew the Morse code faster than anybody on that base it didn't mean that I would pass the test. But me, what the hell did I know? Cocksure, confident, cool. I took the code, code test, and as you've surmised, the damnedest thing happened. I flunked it. <laughs> Sergeant Polo graded the test and solemnly announced... Not a single damn one, you some bitches passed this test. <laughs> of course, nobody was surprised, except me. So as everyone else filed out to go and look at yet another VD film, <laughs> I confronted Polo. I knew something was wrong, and sure enough, I discovered the problem. I boldly took the record off the Victrola, and believe me, that's exactly what it was, a 20-year-old Victrola. That's what the Army was using to teach its crack communicators. <laughs> I'll be damned if that code record didn't have a colossal crack in it. Now, you don't have to be a genius to figure out that every time the needle hit the crack, it skipped over a lot of intelligence. <laughs> I'm not talking about army intelligence here. That's a, that's a contradiction in terms. I'm talking about da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. That's the kind of intelligence I'm talking about. And when I pointed out the flaw in the record to Polo, he merely called upon his native army intelligence, such as it was, shrugged, 
told me nobody ever passed anyway. <laughs> now, I argued with him, but my unassailable argument, when it had him cornered and speechless, he pointed to the stripes on his arm and said they made him smarter than me. <laughs> he said the code civilians learn wasn't the same as the code of the military. <laughs> For one brief moment, he had me convinced that he was right. <laughs> that they were different. In the military, it was the Morris Code, and I'd learned the Gentile kin to that. <laughs> Everything else I'd learned in the Army was different, and I left that room thinking that he was right. Time for the FCC-mandated station break. This is Rain Hamcast podcast number 109 for February 24th, 2024. I'm Will Rogers, K5WLR. We'll be right back. You're listening to Classic Rain from www.therainreport.com. But when I got back to the barracks, I knew that I was right. And I had to know, so I went to my company commander, an ROTC first lieutenant philosophy major from Johns Hopkins University. (laughs) This guy was a 25-year-old misfit, Mensa Society reject, tarnished silver bars on his shoulders, and I explained what happened to him. Told him that I knew the Morse code and cursed the broken record for ruining my career in the military. He looked at me and said, quote, in the words of H.L. Mencken, for every complex problem there's a simple solution and it's wrong, unquote. (laughs) I looked at him in wonder, not because he remembered a great quote from H.L. Mencken, but because it it didn't have a damn thing to do with what I'd said to him. Later in life, I learned that philosophers always fall back on erudite non sequiturs whenever they get a simple question they can't answer or have a simple problem they can't solve. As I started to protest his explanation, he said, dismissed. And that, as they say, was that. I've often thought what would happen if I passed that test like I should have. I'd gone on to be a CW operator, a good one, probably be on board some ship tonight pounding brass. But since I flunked a really big test of basic training, I was forced to polish up my typing, which led to my polishing up my writing, which led me eventually into cranking out scripts and producing movies and television shows and caused me to be the washed-up wreck that you see before you tonight. (laughs) Cheated of an honest career by a broken record. So when I chose the title of tonight's talk, I was thinking about my days in the military, and as a consequence, even though I was just reminiscing, I wasn't thinking clearly. The truth of the matter is, I probably should have called tonight's talk, I'll Take Romance, because when I got into ham radio, it was the romance era of this wonderful hobby. Those few scholars among you know that first came the era of discovery, and then it was the romance era. And now, I suppose, we're in what you could call the technical era. And Gene Shepard, K2ORS, the noted humorist writer and low-power CW operator, touched on this a bit in his keynote talk at the Dayton Hamvention a couple of years ago and caused me to give it a lot of thought. He noted that when he got involved in ham radio, which was about the same time that I did, even the equipment had romantic-sounding names. Receivers were called super pros and sky buddies. 
And transmitters were called Vikings and bandits. Those names really had meaning and romance. Nowadays, it's all letters and numbers. What's romantic about a TS-940S or an FT-736R? <laughs> In the old days, it would have been heretical, heretical, to think of an automated QSO. Now it seems to be commonplace for one machine to talk to another. Ham gets home from work, looks out a printout from his computer to see what he did on the ham bands today. <laughs> I can imagine some ham being a silent key for years before anybody knows it. <laughs> when the first integrated circuit goes south, then the world will know that old Charlie has also gone south. <laughs> He's been silent for years, but his key has been alive and well. <laughs> it's a sort of weird, if not wonderful, form of immortality. Here's the bottom line. You can have the automation. For me, I'll take the romance. You need convincing? Let me give you one more example. When I'm watching an old war movie, and the tail gunner says to the pilot, Jerry's at 3 o'clock. I know which way to look. Guy with a digital watch doesn't know which way to look. <laughs> So what you got standing here before you is what you might call an analog romantic. No, no, I didn't know the word analog until digital came along. Now, since you've hung in here this long, let me back up a bit further so you can understand where I'm coming from here. It was 1948, 47 maybe, Andover, Ohio, a town that even then wasn't very comfortable with the 20th century. I was 16, maybe 15, and like most kids my age, I had a brown plastic Crosley six-tube superhead broadcast radio by my bed. One summer morning, I turned it on and waited for it to warm up. In those days, everything electronic had to warm up before it came on. That warm-up period was a moment of quiet tension. Would it work? <laughs> be on the fritz, as my mother used to say. Well, this day it worked, and it didn't. What I heard was the most god-awful noise that you could possibly imagine. I tuned across the whole dial. The noise was everywhere. It sounded like this. Wiped out everything. Everything. What was it? I couldn't understand a word of it. I looked at the radio. What to do? For some reason, I unhooked the aerial. You remember aerials? <laughs> Those were wires out the window tied to a tree that now and then would droop down a bit and catch your father on the neck while he was mowing the lawn you were supposed to be mowing. <laughs> aerials. They were a lot of trouble and didn't work. Like most people, you hire to do something nowadays. <laughs> anyway, after I unhooked the aerial, the voice was more distinct. It kept saying J9AAI over and over and over again. 
and repeating that mysterious litany what seemed like minutes at a time, and then a voice would say, W-8-L-I-O. There'd be a moment of silence, and the poor, feeble commercial broadcast signal would come on and, and play me the ink spots of the Andrews sisters, and then the same mysterious chant would bury my poor broadcast station again, saying J-9-A-A-I. Now, one of my failings is I've always been curious. Even as a child, my favorite question was why. I went next door in search of an answer. No one knew what it was. They didn't hear it on their radio. A giant 11-tube zenith, polished walnuts, <laughs> dial lights that worked, shortwave bandit didn't. <laughs> I went back to my bedroom. J9AAI was still the only station I could hear, and I listened more. And then it dawned on me that it wasn't J9AAI that I was listening to. It was something called W8LIO. But who was J9AAI, and where was this mysterious W8LIO? I had to find out. I got on my bicycle to search for the mysterious W8LIO. I rode up and down the streets looking for I know not what, but I thought that something surely would be different something emitting the offending signal. Who, you might ask, could find a radio signal by looking from a bicycle? <laughs> I could is the answer, and I did. Ah, but the best is yet to come next time in part two of Your Code Record is Cracked, a humorous after-dinner talk given 35 years ago at the 1989 Dayton Hamvention by amateur radio cinematographer Dave Bell, W6AQ. Dave will return to finish his humorous 1989 Dayton Hamvention talk then. Just a reminder that Rain founder Hap Holly, KC9RP, edits and produces this Ham Radio Hamcast without monetization. Your PayPal support and feedback on the rainreport.com are appreciated. Copyright 1989. 2024, RAIN, the Radio Amateur Information Network. All rights reserved. Very 73 from RAIN, the Radio Amateur Information Network. I'm Will Rogers, K5WLR. Keep on hamming!